This is Black Talk, where global black experts mix with local voices from the black community. Personal stories meet historical context, and black achievement is celebrated as we explore the realities of anti-black racism. Here are your co-hosts, Andy Knight and Zach Penda. Hi, I'm Andy Knight. Hi, I'm Zach Penda. On this episode of Black Talk, Andy and I are incredibly excited to be joined by Dr. Ivla Griffith. Dr. Griffith served as the ninth president of Fort Valley State University. He also served as an executive in residence at the University of Albany and as the 10th vice chancellor of the University of Guyana. He's currently the senior associate for the Americas program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Please enjoy our eye-opening and informative discussion with Dr. Ivla Griffith. Dr. Griffith, you completed a bachelor's degree with distinction at the University of Guyana before moving to New York to complete two master's degrees, one at Long Island University and both another master's degree and your PhD at the City University of New York Graduate School. I'm curious about your transition from Guyana to New York. Did you experience any culture shock, any racism? And uh, if so, could you name a few examples that you wouldn't mind sharing? Well, you know, the short answer is yes, both in terms of culture shock and racism. But part of the reality of the transition was a good side and a not so good side. The good side is that I did have family in New York that helped to kind of help me navigate the environment. The not so good side is that the environment notwithstanding family being in it, still has those potholes and volcanoes that erupt. And some of those eruptions have to do with low expectations on the part of individuals and institutions about you. So here is this guy who may have done well at this place called University of Ghana, but not supposed to do too well. And so from the get-go, there are expectations And I wouldn't want to go into specifics except to say that not only did I experience a kind of a, how dare you defy our expectation of you to be in the mediocrity zone as opposed to the excellence zone. And how dare you have the temerity to want to pursue excellence even though we say to you, you shouldn't be in this zone. And that is a reality which is shared not only by people from the Caribbean, it's a reality by people who come from all parts of the black and brown world. It's also reality shared within the United States and the part of people who are Americans. And unfortunately, there is that element of their expectations versus a reality. You know, if a Caucasian guy is good, he is confident. But if a black guy, especially a black guy from the brown part of the universe is good, He's aggressive, he's too bold. And so there are these nuances, these uh, unspoken definitions of what you should be that one has to, to deal with. But you know, part of coming from a part of the world that is not well known to parts of the academy is that, <laughs> where are you from, Guyana? Where is that? Is, what part of Africa is that? Uh, well, it's in South America. Uh, I remember, I was researching a book, and this is shifting gears from the New York experience a little bit. I was researching a book 
that later was published as Drugs and Security in the Caribbean, Sovereignty Under Siege. And part of that research, I spent three nights aboard a U.S. Coast Guard cutter in the Grenada Basin observing drug trafficking. It drove my wife crazy uh, for those three nights. <laughs> and the, I, I spent the first night in the bridge, the night watch. The first question that I was asked by the captain, Professor, what part of Africa is, is Guyana again? And so I took the opportunity to do an educational project to help him understand a little bit of the geography of the world. And so in the context of the transition, even though you, New York is a very cosmopolitan place with lots of people who are from the Caribbean, from Guyana, still had significant pockets in the academy of little knowledge about this Guyana place and therefore an expectation that you shouldn't excel. Uh, you should keep being in a zone of mediocrity, so to speak. So yes, there was culture shock, and yes, there were experiences of racism and prejudice. Of course, people who were exercising the prejudice and racism are not racist. They don't have a racist bone in their body. I have a black friend. I have a friend from the Caribbean. I like some of your food. For them, those are ways for them to assuage their own guilt and, and deal with their own prejudices without wanting to acknowledge that prejudice. <laughs> You know, me and you, we share a special relationship then because being from Guyana and having people ask you, you know, what part of Africa is that? Me being from West Africa and being from Ghana, when I tell people I'm from Ghana, sometimes they say, oh, you're from Guyana. Oh, yeah, that's in <laughs> South America. And, uh, you know, uh, I know that place, uh, Guyana. And I'm like, actually, no, it's not Guyana. Uh -huh. It's Ghana. Yeah. They're like, oh, Guyana, Guyana, what's the difference? Okay, so <laughs> I, uh, I know how you feel. On that one, and uh, you know, I, I used to. At one point, it was embarrassing to my kids and even to my wife. We would go places and we were checking at hotels, and people would ask, "Well, what part of Africa? Where, where are you from?" Uh, I would say, "I'll give you five guesses, and if you don't tell me the answer of where I'm from in, in five responses, I'll give you another five responses or five years if you'd like, and just send me an email." I remember being in Salt Lake City, Utah. You know, I was then dean at Florida International. Took a team of students to a, an honest conference. I spent six days at that hotel. The same person who checked me in, checked me out. She still could not tell me and didn't have the, the presence of mind to find out after I gave her the assignment in the first day. Couldn't tell me where Guyana was. And so you have that kind of mixing. I mean, in some respects, it's kind of understandable, the Giga, Guyana, Ghana. Uh, so yes, both wonderful places, Guyana and Ghana, but not the same place. That's right. And you know what? The problem in our education system isn't taught. It isn't taught. But uh, moving on, I have another question for you here before I let Andy uh, take over. So following the completion of your PhD, uh, you started to work at your alma mater. And during your time as a professor there, you're promoted to the position of provost and senior vice president of the York College at uh, CUNY, the City University of New York. Within this position, you were able to grow the full-time faculty by over 30% over four years and create a provost lecture series, a distinguished scholars lecture series, and establish an undergraduate student research program. I bring this up because I always enjoy highlighting these achievements to show our younger Black viewers what a Black man was able to accomplish despite the barriers he must have faced along the way. And so I'd like to give you a chance to speak toward 
your inspiration during this time to go above and beyond to improve academics to the degree that you did at Cuddy? What motivated you to make such a large impact? Well, part of what constitutes the student body of your college, part of what my own sense of self and inclination to want to pursue excellence and to facilitate excellence are things that enabled me to be compelled to do what I did at your college, City University of New York. But an important factor also is the fact that I had a president who was Jamaican who said, I've law, you do what you need to do. And so I had that space from the number one official in the, in the, in the university to be as creative as possible. I was able also to do those things because I had a partner. You know, you can have all these great ideas to do things that will cost money. But if you don't have the money, you can't do it. And I had the good fortune of having the senior vice president for business and finance, the guy who controlled the money. He and I struck a deal quite early. His name is Jerry. He said, Jerry, here is what I've got in mind for you. I'm going to make you great in this university. One way we'll do that, you'll help me find the money that I need to make the innovations and make the initiatives come to life. And so Jerry and I struck a partnership. He provided the funding. I went about doing those things. And part of what is the reality of your college is essentially a black college. It's essentially a college of people from the Caribbean predominantly. Your college is in part of New York City called Queens. There is a link between the Caribbean and Queens that is so strong that people call a certain part of Queens the 11th region of Guyana. Guyana has 10 regions. Queens is region 11. And that is because of the significant number of Guyanese, particularly Indo-Guyanese who live there. Queens, the borough of Queens in New York is the most racially and internationally diverse borough. People from 146 countries across the globe. And so the people who I was serving as provost were my people. And I felt compelled to enable that they will have the maximum benefits of their educational journey at the university. Now you can understand that that did not endear me to some folks. You know, I'll fast forward a little bit to tell you this story. Uh, two years ago, the retirement of the person who I served as president, Marcia Keyes, she was retiring as president, and she invited me to the retirement party. A young woman who was a student at the time, and I left, I left York in 2013, we were back there in 2019. A young woman who was a student at the time, who was now a senior official in the college, came to me and she said, you know, provost, I want to thank you for what you did for us students when you were provost. And she reminded me of a meeting I had with student leaders. And she said, you know, provost, I did not know how we were being used or attempted to be used by, and she called the entities, they were largely unions and a faculty group. How do we trying to use us against you 
to get you to back off of certain things that were really in our interest. And she said, and it was after that meeting, and she said she still remembered. After about 15 minutes in the meeting, I hugged her and I said, let's have another meeting to talk about these matters. And she was pulled aside by another black faculty to say, what are you guys trying to do to the provost? The provost is working in your interest. I give that example to say that sometimes our own people are used when other folks see their self-interest being violated. And I'll give you two examples of how some folks. I introduced at your college electronic submission of grades. I introduced electronic processing of promotion and tenure procedures. That electronic submission of grades was not in the interest of many people in the faculty. They would submit their grades any old time, students would be complaining, and I said, no. These students are entitled to have their grades submitted by a certain time. I still remember a big battle meeting with some folks in the union, when the union president said to me, provost, why are you trying to confuse me with the facts? All these facts you bring in me, you're not interested in these facts. Well, the facts because the facts represent the reality of what the students were experiencing. And so when I looked at what the students were having to endure, and when I looked at the comparative disadvantage to those students, some would graduate, cannot get their transcripts completed to send to graduate schools because the grades are not in. Something that is, is, is and I had some of that experience with the University of Ghana, big fights with the union there as well. And so there were a number of things that made me compelled to want to continue the battle and to push the envelope and to enable, created the honors program, created the undergraduate research program. As a matter of fact, the fifth anniversary of the undergraduate research program, I was president of Fort Valley. They invited me back to be the keynote speaker. And I still remember the first undergraduate research day. We'd establish an annual gathering where the whole college would focus on undergraduates and their research, posters and presentations. A lot of people were shocked. Never knew that we had all these talented students in research. You just have to give them the opportunity, motivate them and galvanize them. And so it was a wonderful six years, lots of challenges. I want to switch gears a little bit uh, to the excellent uh, research work that you have done. And I always remembered as a student having to read your work in security, particularly security of the Caribbean and marveling at the, the depth of knowledge that you had on issues related to um, regional security. So I want to, I want to raise this in the context of uh, your work on Caribbean security and the link between the historical role that slavery has played in terms of the kinds of incarceration that we see in the United States and probably in Canada and elsewhere as well, where the predominantly larger number of people in the prison system happen to be black. Is this a coincidence? <laughs> Or is this something that uh, is the direct legacy of slavery? It's legacy on the one hand and it's intentionality on the other hand by people who may not even know of the historical connections. 
I think I had moved already to Florida, but there was one gubernatorial campaign in New York State where the candidates were having as points of pride the amount of prisoners incarcerated. And they were articulating that point of pride in relation to our success in fighting crime. But if you ask the question, who are in your prisons and are they legitimately there, you'll find on the one hand, it's mostly black and brown people. And it's on the other hand, people who are there significantly because they aren't able to have the appropriate representation, because the system is rigged against them from the front end. And those are direct legacies and intentionalities connected to slavery. You may know that once the emancipation of slavery happened in the United States, just as how the British had to find alternate labor for the slaves when they were free in the British Empire and Caribbean, 1834. In the United States, once the free labor in the form of slavery was no longer available, they had to find a way to get cheap labor. And so the way to do that was to create a subterfuge of the laws and the criminal justice system. It was illegal in many parts of the South to walk after 6 p.m., it was illegal to cross the road in a certain way. So you had a whole host of frivolous legal mechanisms, ultimate intent being, let's find a way to get these folks back in prison where we can use them to do the work in the factories, work in the farms, clean the streets of the county or of the state. That was a direct connection, connectivity to the slavery and the aftermath of slavery. But even people who in the contemporary time are not aware of that, they are operating within an architecture that was intentionally linked. It operates in a way in which from the get-go, the guy, maybe been arrested for two grams of marijuana, spends more time in prison than a Caucasian guy who was erected for two kilos of cocaine. The system is by design intended to enable people who are viewed as good or potentially redeemable to get an easier pass. Yeah, I mean, this explains in large part why the U.S. has the highest rate of incarcerations of any nation on the face of the planet. You know, American lawyer Brian Stevenson, he once said that slavery gave Americans a fear of Black people and a taste for the violent punishment to keep Blacks in their place. I think there's a direct link between the slavery and, and the justice system right now. Of course, and uh, it's no consolation to say that that occurs only in the United States. The reality of slavery, slavery having been a global phenomenon, you have versions of that same reality experienced in the United States in other parts of the world. You just take a look at how the Black Lives Matter, the George Floyd, incident of last year created eruptions in other parts of the world, including in parts of Asia, in Japan, where people have been saying, look, the prejudice and the racism have many shades, and it's not only a shade of black, they're shades of gray and brown. And many of those shades have to do with slavery and forms of prejudice in parts of the world other than the Americas. Talking about George Floyd, 
You know, the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution was supposed to end slavery once and for all, but Black people are still today being seen and treated as less than human. The reason why they were able to treat Black people the way they did was because they were considered to be less than human. When we look at the, the court case that's going on, um, you get the sense that Chauvin, the guy who knelt on the neck of George Floyd until he died, he could not have done what he did unless he felt that George Floyd was something less than human. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is that sense of you're not human manifesting itself in other ways other than the criminal justice. Give me two examples. You're not human, and so you shouldn't be living in my neighborhood. And so you have the housing discrimination. I have an in-law who lives in a city called Yonkers. In the 1970s, the people who led that city were prepared to go bankrupt rather than have the federal law that said you have to allow black and brown folks into the housing. You have to get rid of housing discrimination. Why? They're not considered human. They're not considered like us. So you have the, you are not human and therefore you ought not to expect me to treat you as I would like to be treated. Not only in relation to criminal justice, but in relation to housing, in relation to education. The disparities in education reflect Well, you're not human, you should not want to aspire to a certain career and educational attainment. And therefore, the preparation for that career and educational attainment is not worthy of our investing our hard-earned bucks, even though you contributed to those hard-earned tax dollars. So absolutely, the sense of differences regarding who we are versus who we are not pervades the national experience, not only the criminal justice aspect, of the national experience. I live in Long Island in Nassau County, and to the east is a county called Suffolk. Suffolk was the place where after the Second World War, the federal government gave businesses, banks, insurance companies, housing companies, lots of money to create housing for the people coming back from the war, veterans. And written into the protocols, into the regulations was that none of this money can be used for black folk. And so you had, you're good enough to go and fight. But when you come back, don't come live next to us. You're good enough to go and fight. But when you come back, don't aspire to become some of who we are, doctors, scientists. And so it is not only in the criminal justice architecture system. In other arenas, you have that we're human. We don't know. We're not sure. We're not interested in whether you're human. Matter of fact, we're going to presume you're not. And so we're going to treat you differently. We're going to dispense the resources in a way that make it harder for you to achieve excellence. You should be comfortable being in a zone of mediocrity. Yeah, you bring up some really good points, especially the the guilty until proven innocent. Uh, that one rings. That one rings definitely true. That's that's still valid even today and being treated as less than human, not having access to housing. And one point that I want to bring up as well is um, not having access to education um, through segregation. 
And it actually leads well into my next question. You know, I was incredibly excited through through my research to discover that you served as the president of Fort Valley State University in Georgia for a time. Fort Valley State is a HBCU. Uh, this term stands for Historically Black University or College. And uh, these universities primarily served the African-American community by offering high quality education to black men and women during segregation when it was illegal for black individuals to enroll in predominantly white institutions. I, I was wondering if you could describe uh, your time at Fort Valley State, being that you were, you were a part of this and you were able to lead a school that has such a strong historical mission. And um, I'm wondering how did the school compare to the predominantly white institutions you've worked at, such as the University of Albany, and um, any other information you'd like to share with us about Fort Valley State? Well, you know, there's a connectivity to Andy's last question, my response to it, in the sense that if you were to peruse the history of Fort Valley State, peruse the history of many other HBCUs, particularly HBCUs that were like Fort Valley, land-grant universities, you'll find the origins of discrimination. United States maintains two sets of land-grant universities. Land-grant universities are those universities funded by federal bucks to help to develop research and to apply the research in agriculture, in the sciences, in medicine, and a whole host of other things. The land-grant project started in 1864, University of Florida, Purdue University, Cornell University, a whole host of land grants, but those were the white land grants. It was not until 1890 where they said, you know, we got to do something about these black folk. Let's give them some land grant funding. But the funding disparities were so outrageous. They continue to be outrageous. As a matter of fact, they have compelled a number of HBCUs to fight the states because the land grant arrangement says the federal government will do X, the state should do X plus. And many of those states would not put the funding into. And so partly because of that continual disparity, I went into Fort Valley with a very challenged environment. A challenged environment, not only in the context of it being an HBCU, but a challenged environment within Georgia, to the point where Georgia had started a series of consolidating universities as cost-saving measures. And they brought me there thinking that I would facilitate the consolidation. When I got there, I said, hell no, I'm going to try to work to see if we can have this university survive. Ran into a lot of headwinds. Ran into some headwinds from black folk too, because part of my strategy was to recruit internationally. Fort Valley has a wonderful campus, millions of dollars spent on creating these new dorms, but the dorms were sometimes not even half full. And so part of my strategy was, let's do what other universities in Georgia and other parts of the United States, go and recruit students abroad. I remember Andy leading a delegation to Barbados. Let's go and recruit in Barbados. Oh, I got a lot of flack from people in Georgia. This president is going to bring all these people from abroad. Some of them don't even know to speak English. I'm saying to myself, you don't know that Barbados is an English-speaking place? But it was this sense of here is an immigrant president who's going to bring all these other immigrants to our space. But I'm delighted that we're able to make some improvements 
I took some of the experiences of my being a dean at Florida International and a provost at your college into Fort Valley. We created an honors program. We created an undergraduate program. We created something called University College to take some of the students who had not been adequately prepared at the secondary level, at the high school level, just bring them in for a year, beef up their English, beef up their math, enable them to be fully matriculated after a year. Uh, so it was a struggle, but it was a struggle that allowed me to see not only the disparities federally in land grant operations, but the still sense of you are not supposed to be this good, you black folks. Here is what you're going to get. You shouldn't have the temerity to want to ask for more. I will. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the culture of universities. One of the things that we are finding out is that there's kind of systemic and structural racism within universities. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the history of colonization and the way in which that has sort of worked its way into the university system. So to give an example, uh, you know, we have Cecil Rhodes. Everyone knows about Rhodes scholarships, right? Uh, but the guy was a racist, an imperialist. He probably led the way in bringing apartheid to South Africa. And certainly the, the minority white rule in Zimbabwe was largely his doing as well. So I have a question about cancel culture as one of the things that people are talking about these days. Uh, many universities are demanding that the statue of Cecil Rose be taken down. They're demanding that Woodrow Wilson, <laughs> someone that we looked up to as scholars in his national relations, Winston Churchill, another person that um, a lot of people looked up to, is cancel culture a thing? Or is it just simply the attempt by certain white individuals to continue to perpetuate this notion of white supremacy and try to stop uh, black folks and people of color from challenging that premise. Mm -hmm. Cecil Rhodes has been one of the stellar examples of how you can over time whitewash who you were and what you did if you have enough wealth. He's not the only one who walked on the margins of illegality, immorality, and used their wealth over time to enable people to want to forget or play down the damage done in that context. American context, the Vanderbilts, the Carnegie's made their money in ways in which the margins of the law were not just courted, were patently violated. But now they have good, fun, great foundations that give a lot of money and you hear very little of the origins of their doings. It happens that it's a good thing for the envelope of knowledge to be opened over time. And you see in those envelopes that this guy and these gals were not necessarily who people thought they were. And so that envelope of knowledge being open lead people to want to do things like remove the statues. But I would say the removal of the statues, while it may be necessary, it's not sufficient. The statues are only one representation of the institutionalization of myth. But some of those institutionalizations reflect how the law works in funding by the state, how the society works in the criminal justice enterprise, how the society works in funding healthcare, 
how the society is manifestly discriminatory against First Peoples, take a look at what the pandemic has done to the Native Americans in the United States. I don't know what the circumstances in Canada are, but the landscape of support and providing resources is different for those people. And so for me, you got to go beyond the symbolic gesture of demolishing statues and renaming buildings to asking how might we undo some of the institutionalizations in the society, in education, in healthcare, in criminal justice, that will really give legitimacy to what you're doing on a substantive level and not only at a symbolic level. This notion of cancel culture to me is a fad that has little moral substance to it because there is value of doing things like putting down, boycotting, using, it was kind of ironic to hear the Senate Minority Leader, GOP, Mitch McConnell, in response to the Georgia development, telling the business people, you businessmen should stay out of politics. This is the same guy who's been using business, not only to fuel his political career, but have been building alliances between the Republican Party and the businesses as a bulwark of what the Republicans are all about. So when it is convenient, let's not cancel. Let's not boycott. But when it is not convenient, who cares what the businesses do? I think it is a reflection of that envelope being opened, that businesses are saying, we are no longer comfortable allowing you to be so patently racist, prejudicial. We are no longer comfortable allowing you to be so overtly using us as partisans in your political game. And the other question I have, it has to do with your university system or university system in Canada, as well as the United States, as well as Britain. There's been a tendency to have a university system and curriculum that's been Eurocentric, largely focused on the white person's history as opposed to the black and people of color history. Do, we, do you think that we have moved far enough along in trying to transform that curriculum to make it less Eurocentric? No, and I don't expect the progress to be as rapid as I would like, because the educational progress in the university is bound up with a broader social architecture. And that broader social architecture is one where in the media, you see the celebration of whiteness more than you see acknowledgement of black and brownness. You see in the religion, Christianity, some of the patent falsehoods. Jesus Christ was not a white guy. He was a brown guy. So you look at religion, you have the incongruities, you have the falsehood perpetrated there. You look at the radio, you look at the television. So it has got to be how can society as a whole, perhaps led by universities and the curriculum and what they can control, but mindful of the fact that Universities are not islands in themselves, unto themselves, especially the ones that are state-funded. And so, yes, I think we've seen in many parts of the United States appreciable change, not fast enough, but I am conscious of the fact that the universities are not silos. They are rep they're responding to, in many respects, what happened in the broader society. And so the broader society has got to both push and be consistent in the pushing. 
in changing the paradigms, in changing the practices. So you've got to find ways to ask, how might you create space for the walls of prejudice to be eroded at a variety of levels? You've got to have people who are on the administrative side willing to have the temerity, the gumption to push that envelope and say, let's do a different kind of business. We've had such a great conversation today and so many important topics that we touched on. Just to wind things down now, I want to bring up the fact that, you know, there will be many young Black men and women that will come across this episode of Black Talk in the future. You know, some of them will aspire to lead careers similar to yours, and they will have to navigate the world much like you already have in, in an effort to try and achieve some of the success that you've achieved. And so while you have their attention, I'd just like to know uh, what, what would be your parting message to them? Two messages, actually. Message number one is not to allow other people to define your boundaries for pursuit, not to let them tell you you're not as good as you shouldn't aim so high. Aim high. Be willing to make mistakes. Know that all is not going to be good all the time, but have a certain sense of self. And even if you're not a religious person, have a faith in something bigger than you to which you can turn for inspiration and motivation. I still keep a number of inspirational quotes in my email signature. I used to have one years ago from Confucius. Our greatest glory is not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. I translated that into a shorthand that I often use outside of the email signature. I would say, keep on keeping on. And it's something that I had to tell myself very often. And I've told students and others who I've had the privilege to work with. You're going to find moments where you're down because of family, because of health, because of career. But you've got to find an inspiration to keep on keeping on. When I was at FIU, one of the long-standing president, he served for 21 years, a guy called Modesto Maidike. We were at a meeting of the President's Council. President's Council was comprised of all the deans, all the vice presidents, the general council of the university, and a few other people. And President Maidike spent a session asking us, to, let's talk about what keeps us going. How do we manage our challenges? And I, I said, in my turn, I said, President, if you go to my home, you'll find lots of pictures of my family. I want to be able to look around at any time and see what represents for me something bigger than this job, this deanship. I said, the second thing that for me has kept me going and helps me to manage the challenges, and this is a message I would say to folks, is faith. You don't have to wear your religion on your sleeve. But have a comfort level that you are a creature of something bigger than humanity. Whether you are Buddhist or Christian or Hindu. And feel comfortable turning to your faith keepers to help you navigate and to help you keep on keeping on. I also said to my deacon and the members of the council, music keeps me going. You know, ever since growing up in Guyana, I still cannot work in total silence. 
total silence destabilizes me mentally. I always have to have music in the background. And so music is part of what I have found over the decades that helps me keep on keeping on. That phrase, keep on keeping on, is something that I've learned from you. <laughs> Almost in every single time that there was some sort of achievement on my part, we'll get a note from you saying, Andy, keep on keeping on. And I, I thank you very much for that. And thank you very much for sharing your wisdom with us today. I think it's been a wonderful um, experience to listen to you because you've had the, the benefit of being a Black achiever. Now, sense to be white society, not just in terms of your research and teaching, but also in terms of administration. I think to have that combination um, arise to the point where you have risen is instructive for many of our young black fellows and professors and students, as Zach pointed out, coming up in the system. Young students will be able to look at look at you and say, you know, if he can do it, I can do it too. Thank you very much for this time that you spent with us today. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Zach. Thanks. Bye-bye. Now, let's hear from community members with stories from their personal experiences. My name is Timi Tokwe Oriola, an Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Alberta. I'm currently the Special Advisor on the Police Act Review to the Government of Alberta. My research is focused on policing and the use of force. I also study terrorism, particularly its jihadi variant, and insurgencies, particularly resource-based insurgencies. The killings of African Americans at the hands of police officers have continued unabated in the United States. The deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd are two of the most egregious. Scholarly research has begun to document the traumatic consequences of police killings on African Americans. One study finds the effects on black males meet the criteria for trauma exposure. And beginning to observe in the United States some of the social conditions necessary for the rise of an armed insurgency. I predict, in light of the available evidence, that this could happen within the next five years if the current wave of killings of unarmed Black people uh, continues. A number of factors play into this possibility, including, for example, transgenerational oppression, a strong sense of injustice, significant moments, events, and episodes like the killings of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Duante Wright, Patrick Warren, and Marvin Scott, to name a few and a growing sense of alienation and frustration felt by African-Americans. There's also the availability of people willing and able or unable to be unwilling to participate in such insurgency. For example, criminal records, sometimes for relatively minor offenses, oftentimes mar black males for life. Some of these men, I worry, may gradually be reaching the point where they believe they have absolutely nothing to lose. The racialized trauma from police killings isn't the only way African-Americans generally experience disproportionate death rates. For example, they have the second highest per capita death toll from the COVID-19 pandemic and are also at a higher risk of death from cancer. And this is what I consider worrying trends 
as a researcher. And on a personal note, as a black male, I am concerned about the rather casual and lackadaisical attitude towards human life. To be clear, to predict that an armed insurgency may happen in the United States is not the same as wishing for it to happen. I strongly believe that an armed insurgency is not inevitable. It can and should be avoided. Police reform is a first step, and this has to be accompanied by a comprehensive criminal justice reform, including reforms to the trial by jury system, uh, whose outcome is increasingly unpredictable and downright irrational in some cases with overwhelming televisual evidence. The conviction of former officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd, I believe, provides an opportunity for a large-scale societal engagement on the issues of social justice. This is an opening that can and should be utilized for reforms within policing, the court system, and issues in relation to social justice. Thank you. I am Emmanuel Kachere. I am a student from Zimbabwe, and I am in chemical engineering. How would you describe anti-Black racism? For me, anti-Black racism is the discrimination of Black people, people of color, by other races, based on essentially the color of our skin. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, Caucasian people. It could really be any other race discriminating against Black people just because of the color of our skin. How have you dealt with racism in your own life? In my five years almost that I've been here, there have been situations, for example, just out in the public, I've worked retail, I would speak to a customer and don't almost show like intrigue as to where I'm from because of my accent and how it sounds. Initially, I just thought, oh, okay, maybe they're just really impressed that maybe I speak English well. But stepping back after the actual events, I was like, that's not right, where we assume that just because somebody looks a certain way or they're from a certain country, they have to sound, you know, a certain way. Like, I guess in their minds, they had this accent they had created for themselves that people from Africa need to speak in a certain way. And if they don't, it either means they've been in Canada for so long, that's why their accent has changed, or they grew up in like maybe another country where English is the first language. It's pretty offensive. Have you ever had to self-police your behavior? So I use a lot of public transit and I walk a lot. And I've almost gotten to a point where when I'm walking in this, like on the streets and I look ahead and I see maybe like a police car or just like police generally in the area. Subconsciously, I actually make sure to cross the roads to the other side of the street so that I just avoid, look, maybe most of the time I'll just walk past the car and nothing happens, but I just feel uneasy. Or even like when I'm at the train station, I'm waiting for a train and EPS comes down. And that moment until they leave, I'm just on edge because I'm just not sure what could happen in that very moment. So that would be one example where subconsciously I've just had to sort of remove myself from that environment or do something just to prevent something potentially happening. 
What steps can we as a society take toward improving race relations for all? This one is a hard one. I think we just have to address uh, the past. I think that's where we have to start. And by addressing the past, I'd say by actually educating people of what happened, whether it was colonization or was it slavery, because it's shocking to find that when you speak to some colleagues here, a lot of this stuff is not even taught in their like curriculum. So it's almost like they're oblivious. So we've got to start by addressing the past and educating everybody about what happened in the past and why it was wrong. Then from there, it's almost like having a truth and reconciliation, you know, sort of like way forward. It's hard, but I just think at least if we get to the point where everybody knows what happened in the past and why it was wrong moving forward. We can all try to be better and realize that all humans were created equal, regardless of race, regardless of religion. That would, that's what I would say would be what we can do. That was Black Talk. Special thanks to our show sponsor, Kias the Cool Institute for Advanced Studies at the University of Alberta. Find out more at kias.ualberta.ca. Our show was co-hosted by Andy Knight and Zach Penda. Our show producer is Katrina Ingram. Technical production by Tom Merklinger. And I'm Nicola Barito. Our theme music is Fling It Up by Dyson Knight of the Bahamas. Graphic design by Anna Chakravorty. A huge thanks to all expert guests, faculty and students. The University of Alberta acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory and respects the histories, languages and cultures of First Nations, Métis, Inuit and all First Peoples of Canada, whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Find out more about Black Talk at blacktalk.ca. It's Brigadoom home time now. And we ain't even trying to explain. No, too late for you to hide now. If you are there, you must come to play. Masquerade to the city. Freedom to expose yourself is ecstasy. So free your mind and leave we be. Don't waste your time casting judgment on me. Cause he don't wait, this is happening. Ain't nobody stopping me. This is happening. Ain't nobody stopping me. This is happening. Ain't nobody stopping me. Nobody stopping me. Nobody This is Black Talk.